You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, well, thanks everyone for coming. It's uh, great to have you all here. We have a lot of like new faces with us since it's Tuesday. I don't know if that's one of the reasons, but um, I'm glad that it's worked out to switch it to Tuesdays for now for everyone here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is David. Uh, my wife Abigail and I um, have been coming to reality for a few years now. And uh, we work with a Youth with a Mission full-time and uh, help to facilitate Bible schools and teach a lot about the Bible. And so uh, we kind of wanted just to serve the church in some way. And so Pastor Riz and us kind of came up with this idea to do the equip classes. And um, I don't know how many we've done so far, but maybe like four or five, I don't know. Uh, the last one was on the book of Ruth, which was awesome. It feels like a really long time ago. I don't know if it feels like that for you guys, but it feels like a really long time ago. Um, and uh, so for this next equipped class, it's kind of like, I guess, our summer equipped class. Um, it's going to be on the parables of Jesus, um, which is, I think, a really great topic. And so it's going to be five consecutive weeks. And this week in particular is important for you guys to be here because we're going to talk a lot about what the parables are, what the parables are not, and then how are we going to then be able to approach them in the way that uh, they're meant to be read. And then the four consecutive weeks after this, we're going to be picking one parable uh, each week and kind of going through it using um, a few different steps that we'll talk about next week. So if anybody has any suggestions on like, hey, I would love to do this parable, feel free to uh, tell Abby or I, and we will take that into consideration. Um, we haven't really necessarily decided which exact parables. We've kind of thrown around some stuff. So if you're like, hey, let's do this one. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. And so before we begin, I want you guys to, um, just with the person next to you or behind you or beside you, um, just have a brief conversation about the parables. And what I want you to ask is, what has been your experience with the parables of Jesus? And if you're like, I don't even know what that is, that's totally cool. Um, and I understand that some people have been coming to church or have been in church their whole lives, and some people have barely ever been in a church, and so that's totally cool, and um, we're all here learning together. But if you, if you know anything about the parables or not, maybe just share your experience, and maybe what, like maybe if you have a favorite parable, or maybe uh, one that you're like, this one is a little bit bizarre. So just kind of start a conversation with somebody, um, kind of get your mind going, and then I'll call you back in just one or two minutes.
All right, uh, let's come back together. Although I know everyone was having a great discussion, which is awesome. Um, and like I said before, for some of us, we're like, I don't even know what the parable is, and that's okay. Um, it's good that you're here, and um, I am by no means an expert on the parables. I just um, read some stuff and am going to facilitate a discussion. And so, uh, also thanks to everyone who's joining us online. Um, if you couldn't make it here in person, it's going to be online and available later on. So thanks for joining us online. So maybe would, what, maybe would uh, some people want to share with us, maybe just like, what is your favorite parable? Does anybody have a favorite? And you're like, if, even if you're like, I don't even know if this is a parable, you can just share whatever. Whatever you want to sh- say, you can just say something. <laughs> Parables are primarily found in the New Testament, yes. Uh, we're going to talk about one tonight, yeah. <laughs> Kelly, what were, you, what were you saying? I heard you say something. Okay, the rich man and Lazarus. Okay. Yeah, the rich man and Lazarus. That's a that's a really interesting one. Yeah, maybe we should do one of those. One on that. Yeah. All right, the rich man and Lazarus. What else? Or what are some that you may know of, even if it's not your favorite parable? Yeah, the the parable of the prodigal son, probably the most famous one, and we probably will be doing that one next week because it's a great one to learn on, and there's actually a lot in there to learn from. What else? Any other ones? Yeah, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're also going to talk about that tonight. That's another really popular one that you've probably heard somewhat about. Yeah, so what's kind of interesting is that if you guys were here or heard my announcement on um, maybe a few Sundays ago is that when it comes to the parables of Jesus, it's actually interesting because they make up around a third of all of Matthew and Luke. And that's kind of interesting. So a third of all that Jesus said are in parabolic form. And so if we are going to be a community that follows Jesus, which is what we as Reality Honolulu are all about, uh, we want to know what he says. And um, so it's really important if we want to know what he says to understand parables because it makes up a lot of what he did actually say. Um, And if you've been to one of our our classes before, um, we stress the importance of understanding the different genres that are found in the Bible. Um, the last one that we talked about primarily in the book of Ruth was what, for those of you who are here? Yeah, historical narrative. And we talked all about how a historical narrative works when you are reading historic, historical narrative. And uh, that's because it's a specific genre and it is bound by specific rules in which uh, that genre um, was written. It's the same thing with parables. Uh, parables are actually a specific genre, or you might refer to it as like a subgenre that is found in the Gospels, which are primarily historical narrative. Um, so when you're reading the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, you're reading historical narrative, but when you come to one of these parables, you need to think about it in a little bit uh, different um, frame of reference. And we're going to talk about exactly how to do that towards the end of the evening. Um, but before we do that, I want to kind of just introduce you guys to what do we mean by parables? Um, it's kind of a, 
a funny word that most of us probably don't use in our modern vocabulary. Um, and we may know that it's something that's in the Bible, but that's about it. And there's actually a little bit of variation that in the parables. Um, and there's kind of three types of parables. And if you have um, this handout, all of the information that we be talking about is found on the back. Um, try to hold on to this too if you're coming back because we're going to keep referring back to this. Um, if you don't, I have extras too, so no worries. Um, so there's kind of three different main types of parables that are found in, um, in Scripture. And the first one is called a similitude, which I don't really know what that means, but I know that it means a direct comparison of two things that are essentially different. And here's an example of what I mean by similitude. So in um, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, 45 through 46, Jesus says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Uh, I'm sorry, a merchant in search of fine pearls. Sorry, I was reading a different one somehow. So again, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of pearls. So that's a similitude. He's com- Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to this merchant that's looking for fine pearls. And that's what we mean by similitude. It's, it's a very, the similitudes are really short. They're probably one to two uh, sentences primarily. So that's what a similitude is. And then the second um, type of parable is called a parabolic saying or a metaphor. And it is really quite similar to a similitude, but it's a little bit different. It's more of an indirect comparison. And again, these ones are a little bit shorter than um, the third one, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And here's an example of what I mean by a parabolic saying or metaphor. So this is Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So he's comparing the people listening to the salt of the earth, right? You are the salt of the earth. It's, like it's, it's a metaphor. Um, and so those are two um, short types of parables, but the one that we're probably the most familiar with, the one that the parable of the prodigal son is, is what people refer to as a true parable. So a true parable so the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, um, the one about Lazarus that Kelly mentioned, those are what is called a true parable. And they're, they're like mini stories. They have somewhat of a, a beginning, a plot, and some sort of ending. And so true parables is what we're going to be focusing on primarily during our time here. So again, there's three types, similitude, a parabolic saying or metaphor, and then true parables. So now that we know a little bit about what types of parables there are, let's talk a little bit about specifically true parables. So we're kind of talking specifically tonight about true parables. And what I want to do is I want to talk about how do these parables function? And what was the purpose of teaching in a parable? Because I think somebody mentioned, like, I think maybe Kelly, you mentioned kind of like a riddle almost. Like sometimes they're like confusing when you first read them and you're kind of like, why, why does Jesus teach in this way? Why doesn't he just teach in, you know, point one, two, three, kind of like what I want him to do? <laughs> so why is he teaching in, in this way? And so uh, once we understand this, we'll, we'll understand the power and the reason why he does this. And hopefully it will help us in our understanding uh, in the weeks to come. So when we're talking about the function of parables, um, I'm borrowing this language and uh, some people, some scholars refer to parables as a speech event. So it's a speech event, meaning that parables 
are designed to invite the listener to participate in the story. So parables, first and foremost, are designed to get you, as the person listening, to actually participate in what's being communicated, right? And that's why a true parable is kind of like a story. Stories are really powerful because we, we can find ourselves getting lost in the story, getting caught up in the emotions of the characters, right? Things like that. So Jesus tells stories uh, because he realizes the power that they have uh, in the listener. And the reason why he does this is that he invites you to participate or he invites his listener to participate in order to force the person to respond to what is being communicated. So parables are speech events in the fact that they invite you to participate and then they force you to respond to what is being communicated. So Jesus in the parables, he's going to be communicating some sort of truth and the purpose is you're going to get caught up in the story and then before you know it, you're going to be exposed and then you're going to have a choice. Am I going to choose to accept the truth that Jesus is communicating or am I going to reject it? And that's ultimately what happens in these parables which is going to be fun for you because you're going to have to make a decision uh, in the weeks to come. Now, what's kind of interesting is that, uh, Sharon, you kind of mentioned this, is that Jesus, while he did speak in parables quite frequently, he wasn't the person who created this style of teaching. Um, although in your Bible, you will primarily find them in the Gospels. Uh, there's one in particular that I want to show you what I mean by this speech event that comes around a thousand years before Jesus— and it's found in the book of 2 Samuel. And I think this is a great illustration of how a parable is supposed to function. And if you guys don't know the context of this parable, um, this is the prophet Nathan that is confronting David after King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah murdered. So some of us are probably familiar at least somewhat with that story. And this is where we find this really interesting parable because Nathan is a prophet who God says, go and confront David and call him out. And instead of Nathan just going, hey, David, uh, you know what you did. You messed up. You better repent. He decides to tell a parable. And this is going to be a really powerful example of how they're supposed to function as speech events. And I just want to read it. Uh, this, I want, it's going to be like probably like 10 or 15 verses uh, in Second Samuel. And this is what it said. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, again, the, the context is David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then conspired to have her husband murdered to try to cover it up, okay? So it's a kind of a, a messy situation, let's just say. And he's the king, so it's kind of a, a gutsy thing for Nathan to go and confront the king. And this is what Nathan said. There were two men, okay, this is the beginning of the parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many, uh, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him as with his children. You guys get the picture? This poor guy has one little lamb, and it's like a child to him, kind of. It's very valuable and precious. It was used to eat of his morsel I'm sorry, he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. It's quite a vivid uh, description of this man's uh, and his little sheep. And this is what happens. This is the parable, right? So Nathan is telling this parable, and this is what he's getting at. Now there was a traveler to the rich man, um, 
And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and the herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the rich man was like, I'm not going to help this guy out, so I'm going to take the one little lamb that the poor man had, and we're going to eat him. Now, now look at this. This is the purpose. That was the parable. And look at what David's reaction is, right? So David is now actively participating in the story, and he's getting caught up emotionally. And this is where you know this is the purpose, is Nathan's like, I have you now, based off of his reaction. So David says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And I can just imagine Nathan sitting there and be like, Great response, David. Now just you wait because you're about to get whooped. So again, the parable invites David to participate, and David gets emotionally invested, and then his response tells everything. And this is uh, ultimately what happens. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives uh, into your arm, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would, out, I would add to you uh, as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? So in the parable you see that David represents that man who took the poor man's lamb. And the poor man's lamb was Uriah, and the lamb was supposed to be representing Bathsheba. And so again, the genius of this method of teaching is that after David gets invested and he says that, how could David then object to what Nathan said? He couldn't say, oh, no, 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 like, that, that's, I didn't mean that. Like, I, I got caught up in my emotions, right? Like, you know, he couldn't have done that. He got caught in his own, in, the, in like this trap. And so that's the purpose of these parables, right? <clears throat> and so I want to read you this quote from, um, I mentioned this guy before on Sunday, Klein Snodgrass, in his book called Stories with Intent. Yes, it's, it's a funny name. Uh, it says this, he says this about parables. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. Jesus' Jesus's parables are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, to reconsider their way of viewing reality, and to change their behavior, right? So again, parables are, are Jesus uses parables to get his people to stop, and to reconsider what they believe and how they behave in light of the reality of the truth that's being communicated. And ultimately, if you are going to respond appropriately, you will change your behavior, right? Based off of it. So that's, that's the ultimate aim of the parables. Um, my, one of my favorite Bible teachers, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, says this. The parables are Jesus putting the ball in your court and forcing you to respond. And I think we all are aware of the importance of a, the role of a teacher not just giving students the answers, not just telling them what is right and what is wrong, but inviting your student to participate, right? That's really where the learning uh, actually happens, is when your students uh, think for themselves, right, and draw conclusions for themselves. And Jesus, as a teacher, is using this method of communication to do just that. Pastor Riz talked on Sunday about one of our values is discipleship, 
And a disciple means that you are a learner or an apprentice. And if you are an apprentice, all you want to do is learn what the, what the master is saying so then you can model your life after uh, that person, right? And so this is what Jesus is doing with these parables. Uh, so we talked a little bit about how their speech events. First and foremost, they invite you, the listener, to participate and force you to respond. Again, David is a model for how you respond appropriately. Just read Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of repentance. But David could have uh, not responded appropriately, right? As the king, he could have uh, done something with Nathan, who decided to um, come into the king's chambers, right, and uh, kind of confront him. Like, he, he ultimately, David, responded uh, appropriately to the message by um, repenting from what he had done. Um, Kind of at, their, at its most basic form is that they're illustrations. So the, the idea or the definition of a parable is really just to lay aside or to come alongside. So Jesus is going to use parables to try to communicate something, right? And so instead of just coming right out and saying, this is what I want to say, he's going to use these as an illustration to uh, kind of his main point. So they serve as an illustration. They, they come alongside um, the main uh, message that he's trying to communicate. Something that's really important about the parables, you guys, as, as modern readers, is that they are rooted, the imagery is rooted in the ancient world of Jesus and his audience. So that's why there's going to be lots of, of talks about lambs and seeds and things that for us may be like, that probably wouldn't be how I would choose to communicate in the 21st century. Um, but just remember, we're transporting ourselves from our time and place into the ancient world of Jesus and his audience, the people that were actually listening to this. And uh, maybe they thought the same way that we did. Um, but there's a lot of things that they, uh, you know, didn't think that we think maybe today, or that they believed a lot of things that we don't believe, and vice versa. Uh, they lived a very different life. It was primarily like an agrarian culture. We kind of talked about that with um, the story of Ruth. And so Jesus is going to use images that they were familiar with to try to communicate. And I think that if he was here with us today, he would probably use a little bit different. He would be like, whatever is going to be the best way to communicate with you guys is that's the, image, the images that I'm going to use. Um, but it's really important to remember that these parables that Jesus spoke were not spoken or being spoken to me, right? But they were being spoken to people. And so we're first and foremost going to try to understand what did the parable mean to Jesus and to the people listening to it originally. And then we're going to translate that into our own time and place. And that's really important. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. This is probably also, too, something really important to understand, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand on this a little bit towards the end of the evening, is that ultimately, you guys, the parables are all about the kingdom of God. The parables are all about the kingdom of God. And what do I mean by the kingdom of God? If you, if you weren't uh, with us when we did our biblical narrative series and you don't remember that one teaching that I did on Jesus and talked about the kingdom of God, that's okay. I'm going to just do a quick refresher uh, because this is going to be the lens for which we understand the parables. Because we're going to ask the question, what is Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God? And so if you were to imagine... Again, if you were there on, uh, during the time uh, when I talked about Jesus, I did this little exercise. If you were to imagine you being transported to first century uh, Israel and you 
heard that Jesus was teaching at the Sea of Galilee on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, and you went and decided to go listen to him, you can try to just imagine what do you think Jesus would be talking about? Like, what is, what's, what's Jesus' MO? Like, what is he all about? And I think for many of us uh, that are somewhat familiar with Jesus, we might think of like, hey, if I, if I was to close my eyes and just imagine Jesus, I would imagine him saying something like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or love your neighbor as yourself. Or love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, right? Or maybe you would imagine him telling a parable of the prodigal son, right? Something like that. And those are all true and those are all things Jesus talked about, but they're all in the frame of the kingdom of God. And let me show you what I mean by that. Because ultimately, anytime you heard Jesus open his mouth, he would be talking about the kingdom of God. For instance, in Luke chapter uh, 443, this is what Jesus said about his very mission. He said, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as, as well, because for I was sent for this reason. So Jesus is like, the reason why I came to this earth, the reason why I was sent is to proclaim the message of what? The kingdom of God. So Jesus himself said this, his mission has to do with this kingdom. What's interesting in the gospel of Luke, that phrase kingdom of God is repeated 32 times which is significant considering um, how often it's repeated. <clears throat> in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 1, 14 through 15, it says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And Mark repeats that phrase 14 times in his short gospel. And then in Matthew it says this in chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Again, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And Matthew repeats that phrase, kingdom of God, or in his translation, uh, the way that he phrases it is kingdom of heaven because he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience and they don't really like using the, the word God, and so they substitute that for heaven. But he repeats that phrase 36 times. So if you combine those, that's the overwhelming topic that Jesus communicates when he was here on earth. And the last thing I want to show you is also, I think, kind of funny because it just proves this point. After Jesus is resurrected from the dead in, in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, And he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. It's like this guy was obsessed with what? The kingdom of God. Before he died, he was talking about it. After he's dead, he's like, hey, by the way, I'm also going to keep talking about it. So the main thing that Jesus is talking about in the Gospels is the kingdom of God, and the parables are just a way in which Jesus is going to communicate the nature of that kingdom. And so it's important for us to remember that the parables are communicating something about God's kingdom. And I'm going to propose a few different questions that will help us to um, understand that a little bit uh, towards the end. I like this quote from Jonathan Pennington from his book, Reading the Gospels Wisely. He says this, The gospel of the kingdom is the message and the reality that God's kingship or reign has now come in Jesus. The gospel, according to the evangelists or the writers of those, is the message of the return of the restorative reign of God. It's just a fancy way of saying that, right? 
The gospel of the kingdom is the message and reality that God's kingship or reign has now come in Jesus. So that's what Jesus is proclaiming, that the kingdom of God is here, that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And so that's, that's a little bit about what the parables are. Now, before we talk about how we are going to approach the parables, we first need to understand a few things about what we should not do with the parables. Um, This may be a completely foreign concept to you, but uh, it's important to understand how not to read the parables. Because for much of church history, starting in 200 AD through the 1500s, um, the church um, misunderstood the parables. Um, And it's only up until recently that we're now starting to really understand uh, what they are and how they function. And what I want to do is I want to show you an example of this. I want to show you actually two examples of what not to do with the parables. Um, But I want to show you an example based off of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so if you're not familiar with it, I'm just going to read it. So then you have a frame of reference for what I'm going to be talking about in just a minute. So again, you're not going to necessarily know every single detail, but just reading it's going to help uh, with my point. So this is from Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. Again, this is the parable of what people call the Good Samaritan. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, talking about Jesus, to the test. And he said this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this is Jesus' interaction with this lawyer, and a lawyer is just an expert of the law. That's why he's talking about the law. So he's this expert. He knows everything about the law of Moses. But he, talking about the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right, because up there he said, you shall, um, right, like care for your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's like, hey, but who is my neighbor? So that, this is what the parable is about. The parable is answering the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. So that's the end of the parable. So then Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is the lawyer response. And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, Okay, now you go and do likewise. So that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, some of you may be familiar with that parable. Some of you may not. Uh, But now you have at least an idea of what the parable is all about. Again, it's a lawyer, an expert in the law, asking Jesus a question about how to inherit eternal life. And that conversation leads to the question of, okay, if if part of my goal in life is to love my neighbor as myself, I want to know who my neighbor is. So Jesus tells this parable in order to teach him Instead of just saying, this is who your neighbor is, he uses this story as an illustration. And then the end is really important because he says, 
who do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the man obviously understood. He said, the one who showed him mercy, which is the Samaritan. And so then he says, okay, you go and do likewise. And so there's the parable. Now I want to talk to you about what do, we, what do I mean by how not to read the parables? Because this, is, this was a problem that I mentioned throughout church history up until around the 1500s, is that because the parables can be somewhat confusing, and I would say maybe they are indirect at times, and maybe even misunderstood by some of those people who Jesus uh, was speaking to, um, people began to allegorize the parables. And an allegory is a story where each point in the story represents something quite foreign to the story itself. So although the parable is, is almost like an allegory, it's not quite an allegory because an allegory is saying what this represents is something that is so foreign to the actual story. And this was so common. Um, a classic example of this that if you were to read any book about parables, they would use this example. Um, this is actually from um, Augustine, who was a, um, a Christian theologian, church leader in the late 4th, early 5th century AD. This was his interpretation of what we just read, because he thought that they were, it was an allegory. So he's going to associate everything to something that is quite foreign to the actual story itself. And he says this, a certain man went down from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho. This is his interpretation. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace, from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan that we just read. <laughs> the thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him namely of his immortality, and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead. Because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. Again, this is the same parable. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signified the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could profit nothing for salvation. Samaritan means guardian, and therefore the Lord himself is signified by this name. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. Oil is the comfort of good hope. Wine the exhortation to work with a fervent spirit. The beast is the flesh in which he designed to come to us. The being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church where travelers return to their heavenly country are refreshed after pilgrimage. The morrow is the great resurrection of the Lord. The two pence, I'm almost done, are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life of that which is to come. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. So I'm just going to stop there. And we should automatically say that's impossible. It can't possibly mean that, right? And the reason why we say that is because there's no way that the person listening to this parable knows who the Apostle Paul is because the Apostle Paul didn't exist at that point because he wasn't an apostle. Right? So the problem with allegorizing is that you can just make the parable say and mean whatever you want it to say. You could, we should do a little exercise and do one ourselves. That would be kind of fun. So if you want extra credit next week, do that at home and then you, I'll, let, I'll let you read it because that would be kind of fun. But if you, were to just, if you were to just listen to that allegory, you're kind of like, well, that sounds kind of good. 
there's, this, there's stuff about God and there's stuff about sin. And that sounds very biblical. So that must be like what it means. That's impossible. It, it literally cannot mean that. Right? And so that's the danger with allegorizing parables. And that was a problem for over a thousand years in church history. Until hopefully now, although some people still may participate in that, that's just not the way parables are meant to be read. They're not allegories. So number one, when you do not do this, is do not allegorize the parables. And you all probably like, I wasn't going to do that anyways. Thanks for spending all that time. Um, Here's something that you might do. And um, I might be stepping on toes here, but I also think this is kind of important, is do not spiritualize the parables. I don't know if spiritualize is a word, but it did not come up on spell check, and so I'm going to go with it. Um, And I'm just going to define it the way I want to define it. (laughs) And so what do I mean by spiritualize? Again, it's really important to know that a parable can never mean what Jesus never meant it to mean. Right? We kind of use that if you've been to one of our classes before, we, call, we say it in this way. A text can never mean what it never meant. So whatever the author intended it to mean, that's what it meant, and it does not change. So Jesus speaking these parables, whatever he meant it to mean is what it means. And so we want to first discover what did Jesus actually mean before we can understand what it actually means for us today. So what do I mean by spiritualizing this? Here's an example for you. Um, and I'm just going to read what I saw. So this was a little while back. I saw this. On, it was like an Instagram post, and it was just a picture of somebody teaching. I don't know who the person was, and I thought it was interesting. And so I, I remembered it, and I took a picture of it, and I wrote this down. And is it, is it a meme with, like, the writing on it? What is it with just the text on it, or is that just a thing? Is that a meme? No, it's not a meme because it's not like a joke or anything. Anyways, it had text on it. Okay, so that's all I mean. And this is what the text said. And this is in the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, okay? We just read the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know what it means. This is somebody's interpretation of it. This is, that it, this is again, the context was somebody teaching in a church. And this is what they said. The Bible says that the bandits left a traveling man half dead. You guys remember that. But, this is his interpretation. God is addressing the other half. It doesn't matter how the first year, half of your year went, there's another half that's still alive. And I guarantee you, everybody in that church was like, oh, amen, pastor, hallelujah. That sounds so good, man. Like the first half of my year, yeah, I've, I've been through it. And so, praise God, there's a second half of my year that's alive. It sounds so good. And it's just what we want to hear. But it's impossible for it to mean that. It does not mean that. That's not what Jesus meant. So the problem is, is that that person, whoever they were, is saying that this is what Jesus meant, or this is what God means when that's not actually what he said. So what that guy is doing is he's just using the Bible to communicate something that he wants to say. And that's really dangerous for us to do. And the reason why I can be so confident in that is because we read at the end, right? Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be his neighbor who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So the point is, what? How do you be a neighbor to a person? It has nothing to do with how half of your year is dead and the other half is still alive, right? That's what I mean by spiritualizing the parables. And this is probably something that we are more likely to do than to allegorize the parables. 
And I've been in enough Bible studies and, and church contexts and YWAM things to know that this is a really slippery slope that we run into, is that we, hear, we know a lot of things, and there's a lot of good things that are churning in our head, and sometimes we're just like, I have something good to say, and so I just need a Bible verse to like agree with me on this one. And so we're like, here's a verse, and let's throw that in there, and boom, now I have God's authority behind me. <laughs> yeah, well, we're all guilty. I mean, I've done that for sure. And so this is, this is all I'm saying with the spiritualizing of parables, is that this is probably what we would fall into if we were going to fall into one or the other. So this is something we, we want to try to avoid at all costs. We really want to be people that focus on what did Jesus mean, and then communicate that meaning, whatever it was. Right? And so if you want to teach about uh, you know, if you want to encourage people about how the second half of their year is better than the first half, don't use that. Find something else. Maybe a fortune cookie. Like, that is probably a better, that's probably a better vehicle than that parable, right? And so, that's what we do not do with the parables. Again, I guarantee we all are guilty of misusing scripture in ways that we probably shouldn't have. Like, we're all guilty of that, and so it's not a matter of like, wow, I should feel bad about myself, or man, I've done that in the past, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, we need to recognize it so that we try not to do it in the future. Um, so then, therefore, now let's transition into kind of uh, how to actually do this, right? Because we're going to, the things that I'm going to kind of communicate to you guys is what we're going to then use in the following weeks as we learn about these parables and study the parables of Jesus together. And so on your handout in the back, it's now moving to the section of how to actually read the parables. And um, if you've been with us in the past, you know that we primarily, when we do Bible study, we teach through seven steps. And this step is kind of step five and six, which is kind of when we observe the text and then we interpret the text. And so these are just some questions that we're going to ask as we do those two steps. And the first question is, what you always want to do when you, when you come across a parable in one of the Gospels is you want to stop and ask this question. And the question is this. Who is Jesus' audience? Who is Jesus' audience? Now in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who was it? It was the lawyer. Again, whoever that is, but it, that was Jesus' audience. And that's really important for us to understand the meaning of the parable because it's, the meaning is going to have something to do with the audience. Here's an example in the parable of the, um, well, this is in the context of the prodigal son. So in Luke chapter 15, there's three parables. The prodigal son is the third, and all three are communicating the same thing. This is the audience in that parable. It says this, in uh, Luke chapter 15, 1 through 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus launches into these three back-to-back-to-back parables. And the parable of the prodigal son is the final one. So in the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus' audience is tax collectors and sinners. Again, if we were to study this, we'd talk about what do they mean by sinners. And then also the Pharisees and the scribes. And so there's two kind of groups. There's really religious people and then the non-religious people. That's Jesus' audience. And so then if we're going to study that parable, we're going to try to figure out what would this communicate to the, the scribes and the Pharisees? What would this communicate to the sinners? And that's how we know what Jesus was meaning. So that's the first thing. And again, not every parable in the Gospels will have an obvious audience. 
So a lot of these questions uh, aren't necessarily like every single time you're going to find the answer. These are just things that you want to be aware of and to observe. The second question is, what is the context or the occasion? So normally there's going to be a reason why Jesus decides to then speak in this parable. So what is the context or the occasion that Jesus is going to then teach this parable? And here's what I mean by that. This is in Luke chapter 14, verse 7. He says this, Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them. So the context, the reason why Jesus is going to then teach this parable is because he's like, he's noticing how people are choosing the places of honor, right? They're going to the seats that are going to uh, draw the most respect and uh, reverence. That's the context. So once you know the context, then you, it's going to really help you understand what does the parable actually mean. And then Jesus will tell the parable, and it's going to speak something into that. Again, just like the audience, you're not always going to have an obvious context and occasion, but it's something that you for sure want to uh, try to notice. Another thing that you want to ask is, who are the main characters or the points of reference in the parable? Now, when I say main characters, it makes sense when you think about the parable of the prodigal son because we're talking about, like, fictional people, right? We're talking about the son, we're talking about the older brother, and we're talking about the father. So you're like, oh, the characters. But in the parable in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke, the four soils, Jesus is teaching about four different people who listen to Jesus' words, and he's going to He's going to identify them by different types of seed and where those different seeds fall. So that's what we mean by points of reference. And this is important because what you're going to ask yourself is you're going to identify these points of reference and then say, I wonder who, in light of the audience, these things represent. So in light of the audience and the context, what do these points of references represent? In my mind, I want to use the example of the prodigal son, but if we do it next week, I don't want to give it away. So we'll do that next week, and you'll see exactly what I mean by that. Actually, what is the example here? Okay, here's an example. Uh, in Luke chapter 8, again, this is, the, this is the, a parable of, it's called the four soils, or the parable of the sower. And Jesus will flat out just say what it represents. So he says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So again, the, the parable is a, a farmer went out to sow his seeds. And so Jesus is saying the seed is representing the word of God. And then he's going to give four illustrations of there's one that falls on good soil, there's ones that fall on the rocks, there's ones that fall, and then thorns come. And those each represent a different type of person who is listening to Jesus. But ultimately the seed is the word of God. That's what we mean by points of references. What do these things represent? And again, this is why we don't allegorize, because allegory is taking those things and making them represent something that is so far foreign that it's like, it, well, it couldn't have meant that. So when you do this and you ask this question, just kind of remember to keep a little bit of a, a safeguard or guardrails and be like, okay, like I want to make sure that it's going to have to do with something with Jesus and his audience and that ancient Near Eastern context, right? So that's going to be the points of reference. And of course, when you first start doing this, you may not know all of this stuff, and that's why we're going to be doing this together. So by the time we're done with this, you'll be an expert on the parables. Or at least on your way to it. <clears throat> now, this is, this is really important. What you always want to do, too, is you always want to identify is, what is the unexpected turn in the parable? What is the unexpected turn in the parable? Not every single parable necessarily will have one, or not everyone will be super obvious, Right? 
But the unexpected turn in the parable that we read about David and Nathan was that the rich man took the one lamb from the poor guy, right? He had all the wealth and all the lambs he could ever use. The unexpected turn is, why in the world did he take that one? And so you always want to identify the unexpected turn. Because that's really what's going to catch the, the listener off guard, right? So the parable is inviting you in, and you're going to get lulled in the story. Then all of a sudden, there's going to be something that causes you to think. And you're like, wait a minute. Why? And that's the whole point. So what is the unexpected turn in the parable? I don't know why I have that. I'm going to skip that. Uh, <laughs> looks too long to read anyways. Um, okay, so then another question that you want to do is, what you want to do is you want to notice in the text, again, this is just observation. So this is just noticing, what does the text say? What you want to do is you want to identify, is there a reaction by the audience. So again, the people listening to the parable, sometimes the gospel writers will mention the reaction that they get, that Jesus gets from the parable. And if you identify that, that's going to be really important. Um, it's going to be really uh, key information in understanding the parable. Again, this doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes it does. And for, here's a great example. This is uh, towards the end of the gospel of Luke, and this is Jesus telling this um, parable and it's directed towards the religious leaders. And it's kind of a condemnation, let's just say. It's a little bit of a judgment on them. And so this is what, this is what their reaction was. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they had perceived that he told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And so it's really important. You're like, he's teaching this parable. He's speaking this parable to this group of people. And they don't react very good, right? They're, they're so upset because they realize Jesus is speaking against them that they want to kill him. At that very moment, they're so enraged. And that's going to expose something in their hearts, right? You see something Jesus said, is, it's, it's exposing something about them. And so, of course, if any time you see that, you want to note it. Again, it leads into this second, this last, uh, sorry, this last bullet point on here. What is the heart posture being exposed in the listener? So what do you think in light of that parable, of course, we haven't studied it, in light of that parable, why did they react the way they did? What's going on inside of them that would cause them to object so harshly to the words of Jesus? So much so that they want to kill him. What's going on again in their heart? So what is the heart attitude that's being exposed? And again, you're not always going to know. It's not always going to be stated obviously in the text, but it's a question that you want to ask. And then uh, just the last few points is this. We always want to stop and say, okay, what is the main point of this parable, right? Because Jesus is going to tell these parables, and he really is trying to communicate pretty much one main point. And I, I kind of talked a little bit about how they're primarily speaking into the kingdom of God. They're somehow illustrating some truth about the kingdom of God. And so what you want to do is when you're observing these, is you want to ask yourself, what is, I've just kind of like coined it, this kingdom reality that's being communicated, what is Jesus trying to teach about this kingdom that he said he's here to bring? So what is the kingdom reality? And here's a few questions that I want to pose to you guys as far as this idea of this a kingdom, the kingdom of God, because we need to think about a kingdom. And for us, we're, I think, for the most part, pretty distanced from kingship and kings and queens for the most part, although Rue is from Holland and she has a king, so she might be more familiar with this, but I'm from Ohio. 
and we don't have a king there, uh, <laughs> obviously. Uh, here in Hawaii, we're a little bit more familiar with the idea of kings and queens. Uh, it's a more part of our, uh, the history and culture here. So here's what I mean by this, is here's some questions to think about. Because again, Jesus is teaching primarily to a first century Jewish audience, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the background of Luke. And Luke is primarily speaking to a first century uh, Gentile audience. And those, both of those groups of people have an understanding of what kingdoms look like. They understand the reality of a king ruling over a kingdom that has a certain way to govern. And you have a certain way that you live in that kingdom. And so for us, what's important is to kind of get in that mode of kingdom to be able to understand what is the kingdom reality being communicated. So you're going to think about questions like this. These are questions that these parables are trying to communicate. Is first and foremost, where is the kingdom? That's always a really good question because Jesus talks about, he says this in Luke chapter 17. He says, being asked by a Pharisee when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom of God is here. It's a present reality. But if you think about a kingdom, you're like, there's a place, a geographical location. But the kingdom of God does not have a geographical location. So a lot of times Jesus is trying to communicate something about God's kingdom that is addressing this question. For a first century Jewish or Gentile audience, they would be like, kingdom. It's a, it has to do with a land. It has to do with a physical geographical place. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, that's going to kind of hurt their brains, right? It's like that idea of like, I can't quite understand what you're talking about because it doesn't really compute with my understanding. Another question is, who lives in this kingdom? Meaning, who are the citizens of this kingdom? And this is a really important one that Jesus is going to talk about and speak into. Who belongs in this kingdom? Is it just Jewish people? Is it just religious people? Is Gentiles, are they allowed in the kingdom? So a lot of the parables and a lot of things Jesus is talking about is going to communicate something about who actually belongs in this kingdom. Another question is, who is the ruler of this kingdom, right? Meaning, who is the king? Who's in charge here? For the, the readers of the Gospel of Luke, they're primarily living in a uh, Roman-dominated world. And so for them, Caesar is the king of Rome. Uh, for the Jewish people, they have, may have a different idea of that and who is the king of their kingdom. But at that point in time, it actually is Caesar who rules over that land. But they have a, they have a clear identity and a, a clear understanding of who a king is and how they, they rule, right? And so Jesus is also going to be addressing who is actually in charge of this kingdom. And there's two other questions. Is how do you live in this kingdom? Meaning like what are the rules? The ethic of the kingdom kind of. Like, if, if I can belong to this kingdom, how, in the, how then am I supposed to actually live in this kingdom? What's actually required of me to be in this kingdom? And then the last question I think is important is, what is this kingdom all about? What is its purpose? Because when the ancient people, when ancient people would think about kingdom, primarily the main goal of an ancient kingdom was just to conquer as much land as they possibly could, right? We have famous kings like Alexander the Great that was known as just a conqueror. Normally it was about expansion. It was about dominance. It was about power. So Jesus is going to be communicating about his kingdom. And if you're familiar with the words of Jesus and the, the language of Jesus, it's the, it's the exact opposite of that. 
But again, that doesn't necessarily compute with Jesus' audience. And so Jesus is teaching them about the reality of his kingdom that he said that he was here to bring, right? So it's, again, it's teaching, these parables are teaching, they're informing his audience about the nature of this kingdom. And so what we want to do is we want to observe and try to identify that kingdom reality. So then, of course, we can think about the response. First and foremost, we're going to ask, how should Jesus' audience have responded to this reality? Is there a belief that they should adopt? And of course, is there a behavior that maybe needs to be modified in their life? (laughs) So I kind of break it down by belief and behavior. Is there a belief that I need to adopt or maybe a behavior that I need to either uh, change or um, then actually do? And so what we're going to do is, in light of that kingdom reality, we're going to identify that, and then we're going to try to say, hey, in light of Jesus' audience, how should they have responded? That's their application. And then the last question, which is the most important question for us, which is the goal of our Bible study, which is application, right? So application is always the goal. That's the reason why we meet. Again, We'll talk about this next week. Step number seven is application. We spend a lot of time reading. We spend a lot of time observing. We spend a lot of time discussing. And that's all good. And information is good. But if we just end there, I'm just going to tell you, I've just wasted an hour and a half of your life. Because you don't need that unless it transforms you. So the goal of why we meet is always transformation. When we're confronted with the kingdom reality that Jesus tried and attempted to communicate, We want to apply that. And so we're always going to ask this question is, how can I apply this kingdom reality to my life today? That's the most important question. You identify the kingdom reality. You identify the main point. You identify the truth that Jesus was communicating. And then you say, what does that mean for me today? Right? And so we're going to spend hopefully a little bit more time um, during our times this time kind of talking about that and discussing that together and just learning how we can be a people, that a community that, that follows Jesus, that truly when we're confronted with truth that maybe uh, we don't agree with or maybe makes us uncomfortable or maybe it's something that we, we're not quite sure with, that we actually understand what Jesus is trying to communicate because we want to be learners. We want to be disciples. We want to be apprentices. And we want what Jesus wants. And so again, we're going to read parables and we're going to be caught off guard and we're going to be invited into the story and participate. And there's going to be things in our lives that are going to be exposed. And we might be upset internally. Of course, we would never express it outwardly. We're always going to smile, right? But we might be upset about some of the things that Jesus has to say to us. And that's a good thing, right? That's a really good thing. That's why we're here. Because if you're anything like me, shocking, I know, but I'm not perfect. And there's still so much that I need to learn about Jesus. And there's so much that I need to um, die to myself and actually adopt uh, what Jesus has for us. And of course, if we want to be a part of helping to renew the land and be a part of community transformation, we first need to start with us and make sure that uh, we're doing our very best to be conformed into the image of Jesus and to be people that are about his purposes and people that live in his kingdom. And so that is kind of going to be the conclusion for the evening. Again, I apologize that we weren't really in the nitty-gritty of it, but this was important for us to then be able to do it uh, in the next four weeks. And so thank you so much for coming. And for those of you who uh, are watching online, you may have picked a more... um, 
cool location. I, it's a little bit warm in here, um, <laughs> especially when you're like drinking hot coffee, which I can't help myself, but I did. Um, and so uh, we look forward to having you with us next week at 7. I'm going to pray to close us. Feel free to hang out, talk story, whatever. If you guys have suggestions about parables, come see Abby or myself. We'd love to hear about it and try to maybe help facilitate that into our time together. So, um, Father, we just thank you so much, God, for the gift of your word, Lord, and um, for this amazing community that you've um, called us to be a part of for this season of our lives. God, and I just think it's such an amazing thing that we have the freedom to gather here in a public setting and not be afraid of being persecuted, Lord, but just having such freedom to, to learn about you, God, and to fellowship with one another and to encourage one another, God. And we just submit ourselves to you and to your Holy Spirit, Lord, God. And even as we, uh, we plan out this, this series, Lord, and as we, we talk about questions, God, we just say, we want what you want for us as a community, Lord. And most of all, Holy Spirit, we, we understand and recognize how desperate we are in need of you to not just communicate the truth from the word, but also empower us to actually live it out. And so, God, we just, we say that we trust you, we love you, we want to be a community that, that centers our lives around you, Jesus, and to just sit at your feet and to learn. And we thank you for this opportunity over the next few weeks that we have as your community and as your people to learn from you uh, through these teachings. And uh, we just praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that's it.